Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Well, Christmas is nearly upon us and I'm absolutely delighted this morning to welcome Jen Gale, author of the Sustainable Living Guide to our podcast. How are you, Jen? Very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I don't normally read out somebody's biography with them present, but I'm going to do it in your case because it's so fab. And so I think it just speaks to your lovely authenticity and your honesty when you say you're an ordinary knackered mom of two. We can all relate to that. (laughs) Whose life changed when she dragged her family into a year of buying nothing new. Jen is the author of the Sustainable-ish Living Guide and the Sustainable-ish Guide to Green Parenting and runs the Sustainable-ish blog, podcast and online community. She's also the founder of the Knackered Moms Eco Club. Sounds fabulous and lives in Wiltshire with her family. So you're our kind of woman because you're honest, <laughs> you're busy. And I think as well, I read that you're a vet, a qualified vet. Yeah, I don't work in practice anymore. But yeah, I've worked in small animal practice for about 11 years. Yeah. Well, do you know what? First of all, your book is so wonderfully written and Aww. so accessible. And in Tooled Up, we're passionate about tips that work and that people have tried and that, mm-hmm. that are really going to have an impact on family life. And that's what I love about it. But let me just ask you, first and foremost, tell us about what it was like for that year to buy nothing new. Do you know what? It was actually much easier than I thought it was going to be. I know some people grow up, you know, in a very sort of thrifty families, and that's very much the norm for them is kind of shopping the charity shops and things like that. And I think I probably grew up pretty much the polar opposite, you know, very sort of boomer parents, do we call them, you know, post-war, literally my dad kind of worked in the city, do you know, uh, in the 80s, it was that whole kind of thing. And I remember him saying to me once, like, why would you go into a charity shop? He just didn't get it. And that wasn't out of any, you know, they weren't deliberately setting out to kind of trash the planet or be as materialistic as they could. That was just kind of how it was. So we hadn't really thought much about what we were buying prior to that other than you know where there might be a sale on when we could get it cheapest that kind of thing I genuinely hadn't joined the dots between you know what we were buying and what we were throwing away what we were buying and its impact on the planet I mean this was 2012-13 and we did this so it was quite a while ago now and you know before Blue Planet 2 before Greta and school strikes and things so I was aware of climate change we were still calling it climate change back then and but hadn't joined the dots didn't see that I could really make a difference we could make a difference but the year was a complete eye-opener you know opened lots of cans of worms that I sometimes wish we could pack away again and pretend we didn't know about but actually practicality wise much easier than I thought it was going to be obviously I was worried that all the white goods were going to die on the stroke of midnight the time that we began but you know that didn't happen and I think once you start to sort of 
actually look at how much stuff there already is that already exists that is in the charity shops and the car boot sales and the vintage fairs and all that you sort of suddenly realize how abundant or overabundant you know stuff is and how easy it you know it takes a bit more patience it takes a bit more time which are commodities but it's eminently doable definitely I have to say, when I look back on sort of family videos of my now 15-year-old as a toddler, I'm disgusted by some of the choices I'd made <laughs> in 2000 and, you know, six, mm. seven, whatever it was. Why? Why would I have bought a giant plastic car? <laughs> Why did I do that? You were very far ahead of the game. Like, you were trailblazing at that <laughs> point. And that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I just hadn't joined the dots it was a really naive challenge I just thought it would be quite fun and interesting and you know I thought well, maybe I could start a blog and and I think possibly this is how lots of us are feeling now as well that we kind of know subconsciously or on a level somewhere that it's probably not right to be able to buy two t-shirts for five quid or two chickens for five quid or whatever it might be but I just assumed that it must be okay. They're why they wouldn't be allowed to do it if it wasn't okay. And this wouldn't they wouldn't be allowed to do this if they weren't looking after the people in the supply chain or if this was really degrading the planet and things like that. And then you suddenly realise that actually it's not okay and they are allowed to do it. And for the majority of businesses, the bottom line is profit and that comes above people and planet. And this, you know, this sort of realization that actually There's that lovely Jane Goodall quote where she says, you know, what you do makes a difference and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. And that actually, you know, my whole ethos now is it's not about making the best decision every single time because none of us, none of us can do that. And it would completely cripple us and we wouldn't be able to, you know, step out of the front door. But it's about trying to make better decisions more of the time. And I think that's really important. And, you know, you're very realistic when it comes to your suggestions. We can't all become Greta Thunberg Mm. overnight, but we can make small changes. I think it's interesting, isn't it? In the last sort of 10 years, we've proven that even teenagers can have a dramatic (laughs) and extraordinary and positive impact and that we no longer, as you say, that's the big change. We don't expect we were very naive, weren't we? We expected big companies to do the right thing. We expected no one to ever mistreat animals if they were, you know, in the food chain or they were farming or, and I think the naivety has gone. And I think it's very exciting. Uh, Certainly there was a teenager a few months ago, she was only 14 and she managed to get all three major supermarkets to stop selling battery hen eggs. Wow, just yeah. just by her own little campaign. And so mm. I think it is transformative it's, and it's, it's exciting. First question I would ask is, is it fun to not buy anything new? I think there's a little part of me would worry that it's not going to be fun to just, you know, the, the part of me that loves shopping mm. isn't sitting well with the part of me that totally agrees yeah. with you that consumerism is, is off the scale. Mm. Yeah, it is fun but in different ways like there's a certain satisfaction that goes with I mean prior to this prior to that year you know I would sort of go to oh I really like your jumper or whatever and someone go oh I got it in the charity shop and it'd be like really I never find anything when I go into the charity shops and now you know I am that person and there is a satisfaction that comes with having to wait we're not used to that anymore are we when you do find a a treasure or that pair I mean god I was looking recently for a pair of jeans and it 
it took about six months to try and find a pair of jeans that fitted and all those sorts of things. But the satisfaction then of, of kind of having them or, you know, finding just the right thing that you know somebody's been looking for or, or actually even mending stuff. Like I'd never mended stuff at all. As you said, I was a vet, you know, scientist by background, never really thought I was creative and then learned to sew after having our eldest and decided to do this year buying nothing new, called it my make, do and mend year and thought, God, I am actually going to have to mend something now. You know, before that, if something needed mending, I'd just have this pile I'd give to my mother-in-law. And I was scared that I would, you know, couldn't sew a button on. Like, what if what if I do it wrong and it comes off again? And now I look back and I'm like, that was so ridiculous. But the kids were really little. You know, they were spending a lot of time on their knees. I was spending a lot of time on my knees. We were going through lots of pairs of jeans and things. And I had to learn to patch them. And, you know, there, there's a again, there's a satisfaction that comes with sort of keeping something in use and keeping it going and not having to go and buy a new one. And they're kind of a bit of a very gentle kind of up yours to the man, you know, like it is quite countercultural. It's I talk about this sort of, you know, gently disrupting the status quo that says you must upgrade, you must buy new, you must have shiny. And there's just this actually, no, I don't, I don't have to do that. I can do this my own way. And it is fun in a different way, I would say. Yeah. And very empowering that mm. suddenly you're not just buying what your is suggested you buy. Yeah. You're not just upgrading because it's the thing to do. And of course, already I'm thinking about all of the lovely modeling that you're doing to your children in that regard. And especially when it comes to tech in our minds, we can all see the sort of piles of tech, mm. you know, piles of old computers, piles of everything in those yeah. sort of rubbish tips. So I think that now it's an easier message to sort of absorb, but let's take contextual challenges such as Christmas, right? Mm. We want, you know, do we send a Christmas card or not? These days, I feel like, I think I read actually somewhere related to your work about the absolute wastage when it comes to Christmas cards. Mm. It was like, you know, millions of them just sort of going to waste. But let's talk about the Christmas process. How, for example, I might want to write Christmas cards, mm. buy wrapping paper, buy toys, etc. Where would the small edits be if they were adopting your kind of approach there? I mean, Christmas is difficult because, you know, not only are we, I mean, making any kind of change can be difficult. And obviously, you know, so at any time of year at Christmas, we've got all the societal expectations as well. And we've got all the family, you know, the, the wider family as well that we're trying to sort of maybe bring along for the ride or we haven't been able to have these conversations with during the year and things. So it does make it extra difficult. And obviously, you know, Christmas is basically a time of excess, isn't it? Nobody wants to be the kind of bar humbuggy Scrooge thing. But so really focus on the stuff that's in your control. So that will be the stuff that you're buying, the cards that you're sending, the wrapping paper you're using, the toys that, you know, the, the stuff that you're buying for presents and the food that you're buying as well. In terms of things like wrapping paper and Christmas cards, I mean, we've to sort of, I don't think we made a conscious decision not to do cards, but we haven't done them for the last couple of years. And that's probably more out of sort of laziness and... <laughs> than kind of anything else but looking for cards that don't have glitter on them that sort of aren't that met shiny metallic and um, because that's sort of essentially plasticized you know that's sort of plastic so it can't be recycled you can get lots of cards now that come in you know cardboard packaging you buy boxes of cards rather than the the outside plastic packaging and things you know and have a think I know lots of people now do a charitable donation and we'll put something on social media or whatever saying you know we haven't bought Christmas cards this year but please know that we've made a donation or maybe you just send them to the you know the, the old 
if you've got sort of older relatives who kind of expect it or that's your way of keeping in touch and that kind of thing. For me, it's all about how do we make this a more mindful, thoughtful process rather than, you know, we had the conversation with the kids about um, sending Christmas cards to all the classes at school. And there's been a bit of a campaign this year to try and knock that on the head, because if you've got 30 kids in a class and they all send each other a Christmas card, that's 900 cards times that over how many kids you've got in the school times that by how many schools in your town you suddenly think oh it's not just 30 cards that my kid's sending it's a hell of a lot of cards and so actually you know lots of schools have been having these conversations and and again having these conversations with the kids really lovely you know what a lovely maths problem to set them if everybody sends everybody a card in our class how many cards is that how many envelopes is that it takes this many trees to make this many you know you can kind of do all that kind of lovely maths and then you can also say So what do you guys think we could do instead? You know, and it might be that you do a secret Santa for cards or that everybody makes the class one card and it gets displayed somewhere or things. But it's really gentle ways of having these conversations. And obviously, the brilliant thing about when you do this with kids in schools is they go home and have these conversations with their parents and you get this sort of almost positive pester powered, you know, where they're going, mommy, I learned this at school today and wow. And and then why are we still doing this? I mean, you're like, oh, it's really hard to argue with a seven-year-old about something like that, you know? So I think as a family, I love that idea. It's not about sort of imposing change on your Mm. children. It's bringing them along with you as sort of agents of change. Mm. And that's quite exciting. But I think you have to sort of know why you're you're doing these things, don't you? I think these days children get it. They understand the planet is under threat. Yeah. And that's the brilliant thing about kids is they are so much more black and white about things and so much more, they don't know that you know, well, that's difficult because politically X, Y, and Z, or because, you know, the, the the economic system is this. It's like, well, that just needs to stop. I see this with my audience saying, you know, their kids will then go and have conversations with their grandparents that they might not be able to have with their parents. Do you know, like, oh, granny, why are you doing that? We're really trying hard with plastic at home. Why are you still buying X, Y, and Z? And it, like I said, it is really, really difficult to argue with them. And they just get it. So you know, then it becomes, I mean, God, I had a conversation with my youngest, he's 10 now walking to school. And he's, mummy, will I not be able to live my full life? And I said, well, well, what do you mean? He said, well, will my life not be as full as it might have been because of, you know, the climate and things? God, what do you say to that? Do you know, like my heart just kind of broke. It is horrendous. I think that sort of climate anxiety, they have a lot to be anxious mm. about. And I think yeah. it's just, an, and I think the onslaught of media content their access to digital media even if they play a computer game they can see this news feed Mm -hmm. uh, often and I think that that contributes to that so it is a a difficult challenge but I think one of the lovely things that you're giving children and you're giving families in your book is that agency that we can do something about it even if we're not perfect and that's certainly a message that comes out loud and clear you aim for progress rather than perfection which I really love that point. And I think, you know, some of the things you've made me think about are really just as a household. One of the things that I read was that household consumption is responsible for more than 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. And curbing, one of the words or phrases that came out was impulse buying. You know, it's so easy to buy Mm. stuff online and not to think about the process, the packaging, the warehouses, the Mm. boxes, Mm. the ribbon it all comes in. It's so easy to just buy stuff, isn't it? And cheap. 
it's so convenient. You know, Amazon has absolutely nailed it because they've made it so convenient for us. And, you know, you can get it next day and all those kinds of things. But actually, I've got my own podcast and I just interviewed a guy called JB McKinnon, who's written a book called The Day the World Stops Shopping. And he really looks at this issue of consumption. You know, it's this excess, very conspicuous consumption and consumption actually has completely skyrocketed in the last 20 years. And I think of the last 20 years as, you know, 20 years ago as being the 80s. And it's not. It's only since the turn of the millennium. And consumption is a bigger problem than population. And realistically, we can all reduce our consumption. Do you know? Yes, as you said, it takes a little bit of the fun out of it. (laughs) But actually, and somebody else, somebody in my membership, she describes it as the kind of the ultimate marshmallow test. Is she prepared to forego her marshmallow now so that her kids and grandkids can have their marshmallow in 30 years time or whatever? And it's like, wow, yeah. And (laughs) this isn't about making people feel guilty. This is, but this is just about trying to just slow it down a little bit and be that little bit more mindful and thoughtful you know do I actually need this and it, and a lot of it is you know it's that dopamine hit we get when we buy something but actually trying to curb that inner toddler I think maybe that's in in all of us like, I want that I want that we want shiny we want new and it's no wonder we do because we're bombarded with you know messages every single day we see all this conspicuous consumption on social media and and it does absolutely surround us so it it is it's one of those things that sounds kind of super easy, but isn't simple. Do you know, it's it's simple, but not easy, whichever way around it goes. It's hard, but it's very much needs doing. I really like the sort of, you talk about the sort of the psychology of the buying. So you sort of hint that we need to examine our own minds mm. before we press buy or or just, and that is thinking about the motivation for doing so and being honest about impulse purchase. You know, why are we buying this? Is it to cheer myself up? Mm. Is it to feel better? Is it because other people have it? Like why you've made me think about, you know, why do I want to mm. upgrade my phone? Yeah. 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 What happens to my phone? But then I was thinking that, you know, having that sort of mental self-talk is a good thing to introduce into family life and I've been very interested in what some of the biggest fashion people like Vivian Westwood Mm. Stella McCartney they all know that we need to be changing our consumer habits and you could argue they're sort of part of the problem in terms of fashion you know um, Mm -hmm. but, but they too know that things have to change so I've been listening to what I'm interested in the fact that they're also being honest about buying things and and taking an interest in the consumer interest in where things come from. I think that is something as parents that we should be passing on to our children when they see that advert for the two t-shirts for five pounds. There are questions to be asked, right? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, even, you know, some big brands, I mean, Patagonia are a a sort of outdoor brand, and they very famously have had a sort of different business model. And they had quite a famous Black Friday campaign several years ago, you know, literally said, don't buy this jacket. But interestingly, brands like Levi's are sort of looking at, at how they can change their business model around, you know, most business models, certainly in fashion are, you know, sell as many items as you can and they're now thinking about well how do we sell products that last longer and introduce repair and all those kinds of things and even you know IKEA are doing very similar things talking about furniture rental and stuff like that so the conversations are happening and as you say I think that these are conversations that we can have really gently with our children as well or you know in classrooms or whatever and and you know I genuinely before we spent that year buying nothing new if you'd said to me where's your jumper made I would have said in a factory 
absolutely, of course, it's made in a factory. But I just assumed that it was a very automated factory. You know, there's a couple of people checking the machines are doing what they need to be. It would never have occurred to me that there's a woman sat there you know, hunched over, sewing the same seam on the same T-shirt day in, day out. She's probably had to leave her children at home without childcare to come and do this. She's not being paid a living wage. She's probably working a 16-hour day. She's not working in very safe conditions. In order for me to have a T-shirt that I'm going to pay five quid for, maybe wear once or twice and then throw away. When we actually stop and, I say, allow or force ourselves to confront that, it's pretty horrific, isn't it? It really is. And the other thing that I think the questions before you buy it, you know, what's it made from? Who made it? How long will this last? And what Mm. will happen to it when I no longer need it? Mm. But it's important at the point of purchase to take an interest and ask those questions so that companies know that we care about those things. Yeah. And so this idea that actually I completely understand why people one of the other reasons I think we sort of look away from the climate crisis is, is because it's so big, it's so overwhelming. We're just one little person. What can we possibly do? And that's not to say that we let businesses or governments off the hook, but actually as individuals, we can do a huge amount. And so this idea that the power we have as consumers, you know, we get to choose at least some of the time who we give our money to. Do we want to fund another spaceship for Jeff Bezos or do we want to help Doris down the road with her local independent shop that she, you know, it's it's those kinds of, and, and I'm not saying again that we make the perfect choice every time, but when we do have a bit more time, a bit more headspace, a bit more money, can we make some slightly different choices? And, you know, so, so we have this power as consumers for where we spend our money, but also our consumer voice exactly as you say asking those questions so things like what have we got and I thought you know so saying oh like the kids school shoes so I've now got these school shoes that aren't you know they've absolutely end of life they cannot be you know reused by anybody else I feel like Clarks or whoever ought to take those back all of these companies making these things ought to have this kind of end of life responsibility for the stuff that they make and we should be able to return it to them And then, you know, once they're inundated with knackered old pairs of shoes, you would hope that they will develop some kind of recycling process where they'll be able to strip it back and reincorporate bits and things like that. And so what we're aiming for is this very circular economy. But, you know, so asking the question, you know, I I sent a tweet out at Clarks, what do I do with my kids' old shoes? Do you take them back? Didn't hear an absolute dicky bird from them. But, you know, you can imagine if suddenly they're getting 50 of these tweets or 100 of these tweets, they will start to, or you would hope that they will, the pressure is on and they will start to change. Or when you see a a shop already doing that, I was in a shop recently and they had a bank of old sunglasses or socks or whatever it was. So when you see that, we need to be much more vocal about Mm. how fantastic that idea is. So we have the power to change that. I want to return to the idea of borrowing, you know, Mm. I think... You know, when we were kids, maybe borrowing something, my parents might have thought was a bit distasteful, you know, that why would you borrow it when you can buy it yourself? But it has to become a little bit more sort of fashionable, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? I think one of the things I may have read, I think, from your book was, do you know that the average drill is only used for 13 minutes? There are beginning to be two libraries in the UK. Yeah. (laughs) So you can rent anything. You can rent posh dresses. You can rent tools. You can rent furniture, everything. Yeah. So the tool library, well, the biggest tool library in the UK is one in Edinburgh called the Edinburgh Tool Library. And it is amazing. I've been up there and Chris, the guy who runs it, is just phenomenal. And, and you know, it's exactly that. So the idea is we don't need a drill. We need a hole in the wall, do you know? And so the, the drill is the tool that enables us to do that. 
so I live just up the road from Froome in Somerset and they had the UK's first share shop. So this is a library of things. So again, they've got tools, but they've also got, I don't know, high chairs if you've got grandchildren coming to stay or they've got preserving pans if you've suddenly got a glut of something from the garden or you know all these things that probably take up quite a lot of room that we don't actually all need to own and we only need for a short period of time in London there's an organization called the library of things and they're starting up sort of franchises all around London and you know for somewhere like London where there's a lot of younger people maybe in rental maybe don't have the space you know for a lot of these big things I think they'll do a lot of kind of carpet cleaners and pressure washers and things like that it's absolutely a kind of a no-brainer and as you said the more convenient and the more desirable I guess we can make these the more normal we can make these kinds of services then the bigger impact they're going to have. And oh, just quickly as well, kids wise, kids toys, there's a, a kids toys rental service called Whirly, W-H-I-R-L-I, and I'm not on commission. You buy a subscription and you get so many tokens per month and you can choose the toys that you want. You get them, the kids play with them, they get bored with them, you send them back, they get you order the next lot and they've got everything on there. Like you said, the big hideous plastic cars or the jumperoo things, you know, those big noisy things. They've got balance bikes, they've got baby rattles, they've got Nerf guns, they've got outdoor toys. Like it's such a brilliant Christmas present, for, I think, for a grandparent or somebody to give to the young people in their lives. It, they toys go up to about age sort of eight or ten, I think. But yeah, we loved it when the kids were younger. It's interesting because the internet has facilitated that mm. sort of swapping, hasn't it? Yes. You know, we can say a lot of things about the internet, but that's been a positive. What do you think about role models? Who do you see apart from yourself as great role models for your own children? It's really difficult because I, you know, I really hoped that we'd do this year by nothing new. And I had this, you know, my kids will come out and they'll be just, you know, so unconsumer focused and things. I mean, realistically, they were two and four when we did this. So it was completely naive. But my kids are kind of engaged, like they know what I do, but they're not massively into it. You know, if I, I suggested to them when the school strikes and things, do you want to come on to school? No, why would I do that? You know, and so I think it's really important that we let our kids come to this in their own time. I mean, role model wise, there are so many amazing young people out there. You mentioned the the girl who did the campaign about eggs. There's another uh, young lady who I think got Waitrose to, to agree to ban the magazines with all the plastic tat on the front. There's a couple of great sisters called Kids Against Plastic who do great campaigns and have a great organisation and charity around plastic and things. You know, there are lots of great role models doing things differently sadly you know the proportion of them compared to the proportion of air quotes influencers we see doing very conspicuous consumption you know you you have to go and kind of hunt these guys out and almost curate your social media feed so that it includes these very positive role models that's a lovely tip I think watching their children's digital diet and thinking about who inspires them is very important what about school communities a lot of school leaders school teachers listen to this podcast In terms of reducing waste at school, generally, teachers are fantastically conscious about some of these issues. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm so aware it's been such a tough two years, you know, for everybody, but the teaching profession, you know, especially and to sort of I feel always like, oh, God, I can't ask them to do another thing or another thing. I think generally, you know, recycling, I know lots of classrooms still don't have, you know, even paper recycling. So, and making it really easy and convenient. So you might have a paper recycling collection, but actually, unless there's a little labeled box in every classroom, 
that makes it really, you know, maybe next to the bin that that's where the paper goes. It's, it's those kinds of things, making it really easy, you know, doing an assembly so that you've got the kids on board with this, because if the kids are on board, they're going to be nagging the other adults in the team who might not be quite kind of there. But, you know, and giving the kids some kind of responsibility over it as well. Some of your teachers might be aware of eco schools. So this is a, a nationwide organisation and, and they're very much student led. So they talk about, you know, having an eco council, getting them to do an audit of what the school's already doing and doing really well and then putting you know so guys what do you want to do what do you want to see changed in the school and you know I am so passionate about the power that schools have to create a difference not only if you see them as a business in in the sort of in their day-to-day running but they're influencing a whole generation of children and I really feel like actually we're doing them a huge disservice if we're not talking about this kind of stuff teaching them how you know the things that need to change but also really crucially empowering them in the abilities that they have to create change and to go out into the world and create change and then obviously as I said you know as a school you're unique because you're not only a business and you've got these children but you're a community as well and these kids will go out and will spread an awful lot of these messages for us so I think schools are just uniquely placed to be huge powers for change and I think again some of the things that you mention in the book you know using refillable board pens glues Mm. telling parents not to sit in their cars with engines running what happens to food waste I think that's a really really interesting question I think that's something all pupils are interested in anyway they're interested in the dynamics of the school and they can be empowered to research and reflect and then create some tangible actions and also thinking about eco clubs I think schools Mm. have been much better in the last 10 years really you know how growing vegetables and having eco clubs and empowering young people to see that they are the change in the world isn't that accurate yeah definitely and I think you know, lots and lots more schools are now thinking, okay, how can we go one step beyond that? Because eco schools are great. And they're a brilliant starting point for lots of schools. What we really want, but there's a risk that it's like, oh, that's the eco club over there, they do that thing. And the rest of us just carry on as we were. What we really want is to be looking at how we can integrate this. So it becomes kind of part of the ethos of the school, you know, so that it's, it's everybody's job to be doing the eco stuff. And I know there's a lot of talk in the education world at the moment with the recent announcements that came out about this sort of, you know, increasing the amount of sustainability education in the curriculum and things like that. And I mean, there's a brilliant project at the moment called Ministry of Eco Education, and they've actually produced a whole primary school curriculum that you can literally pick up and that embeds sustainability throughout the whole curriculum. So it's, you know, it's thinking about how can we view I mean, this is what all businesses and all households really should be doing. How are we viewing all the decisions we're making through this lens of sustainability? Is this decision compatible with 1.5, with 1.5 degrees that we heard so much about during COP? You know, it, it kind of really needs to start becoming like that. The key thing is about decision making, isn't it? Mm. The philosophy of our own decision making within family life and teaching our children at least how to be critical consumers. Yeah, because... God, I was just talking about this with somebody before hopping on the call with you, this idea that, you know, when we were little and we were watching telly, there would be an ad break and it was really obvious it was an ad break. And that's when you'd go and make a cup of tea or go for a wee or whatever. Now, advertising is so insidious and it's so it's everywhere, isn't it? And although our children might be watching less ads actually on telly because of Netflix and things like that, actually it's coming at them through YouTube or it's coming at them through influencers that they might like and follow who are actually 
you know, yes, you have to hashtag add it, but they're advertising a lot of stuff. They're advertising these lifestyles of abundance and conspicuous consumption. And those are the values that we are teaching our young children, our young people to hold. And actually coming right back down to it, and this is where I talk about Christmas as well, it's thinking like, what values do I want to have? What values do I want to bring to our Christmas? What values do I want my children to have? And we will all have a values action gap. You know, we have a set of values. I would hope we all believe in fairness and equity and we all want a a cleaner, greener planet. But the actions that we're taking often don't match that because of time or budget or whatever. And it's thinking about how we can narrow that action gap. And so often, I mean, I don't sit down and talk to my kids about values and possibly I should. But I think sometimes it's about drip feeding oh well we don't do you know I'm trying really hard not to do that because x y and z and actually that's you know that doesn't really help people who are over there and those kinds of things so it doesn't mean having to sit down and have a big deep and meaningful conversation but it's about trying to actually maybe you and your partner do sit down and have that conversation about values and then how you can start to bring those things into your sort of family life and the other thing is children are so naturally democratic. They have such yeah. a sense of natural justice. Um, they don't want yeah. to cause harm. They're interested in equity. Mm. So we've already got natural allies yeah. within family life. If we can just sort of activate it. And, and what we're modeling is obviously very, very important. In terms of activism, again, I love your idea of kind of voting with your money, challenging retailers if you don't mm. like their decisions. There's so many interesting things that we could do, isn't it? You, you don't have to have a big, massive day where you change everything. It's just catching yourself before you consume. Yeah, so it, it, it is that mind, you know, mindfulness has a thing, but that that more thoughtful consumption. So I think we now live in a, a society and in an age where a lot of our consumption is very unthoughtful, isn't it? Not in a malicious way, but because we're busy, because we're going to Lidl's for a pint of milk and that, you know, and then suddenly you're in the middle of Lidl and oh, they might like that and they might like that. And and stuff is cheaper, clothes are cheaper, food is cheaper, stuff is cheaper than it has ever been. So maybe some of that financial pressure that may have curtailed our consumption previously I know for some people that is still very much there but for some people it isn't and so therefore that um, little safety guard or whatever is gone and so we just kind of oh yeah that's nice and that's nice and that's nice so it is just about I say just and there's no just about it it is about trying to exactly as you said catch yourself before you buy that thing you know with the kids if, if they ever pester me into the toy shop I'd say okay right we're going to take a picture of that and if you still want it in a week's time or whatever, like we kind of need to do that for ourselves, you know? So actually I'm going to take a picture of that dress. And if I still really want it in a week's time or a month's time, then, you know, I can have a think about where I might be able to get it if I can find it secondhand. And that was the key, I think, for that secondhand year was that it was it forced me to slow down. I couldn't just get what I wanted when I wanted it. I had to put in a bit more time, a bit more thought. So that actually by the time I came to buy something, so I was like, Phew want it anymore (laughs) it's quite interesting I think one of the big problems in family life is how busy we are Mm. and because we're busy we don't have time we just buy stuff we have to buy 20 presents we just do it in one hour online we're not thinking and Mm. I think we are time poor and I think one of the maybe the only silver linings of lockdown was that families suddenly had to look inward and were able to think about the way their house worked or the way Mm. it functioned or being able to think through home improvements Mm. or what you know and and investing more time if they had that sort of green space Mm. or growing their own food or so I think that that was 
an interesting pivotal moment within family life where they were able to say, wait a minute, how are we living? You know, what do we value? And I think certainly that could be one of the outcomes of the experience of lockdown that we value more of what is important to us. I really hope so. And I did have a you know, that, that it felt like there was a moment during, I don't know if it was the first lockdown when, you know, everybody was like, isn't nature amazing? You know, like that first lockdown, literally everything stopped, didn't it? The world stopped. And it felt like very much like that, that we were much more appreciative of the, the small things and nature and things like that. And I was like, maybe this is the turning point. To a certain extent, I think we've all just gone helter skelter back to the way that we were. And, you know, and it's very much a societal thing. We glamorize busyness, don't we? We, we like it's, it's almost shameful to say, oh, do you know what? I did absolutely nothing today, you know, or to say, oh, God, yeah, well, actually, I had a spare hour and I just curled up on the sofa and read a book. We have to be seen to be busy the whole time. And I think that's kind of part of it, isn't it? And the whole thing about four day weeks and things like that is actually that, you know, it gives us our time back to do the things that maybe that we want to do. And we try and step off this treadmill of busyness. And there's all those quotes about, you know, earning money to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know. And and we get caught on that, don't we? And that all sounds very worthy and very woo. And, you know, I'm not sitting here on an amazing pedestal of mindful unbusiness in any way shape or form but it's about I guess yeah trying to catch yourself some of the time and I think we've learned we don't really like being busy and we don't like (laughs) saying yes to every invitation I think there was a lovely phrase on Instagram yesterday about the joy of doing nothing you know just being at home you know rather than the fear of missing out the sort of the, the antithesis is very exciting and attractive So listen, I think I certainly don't recommend books unless I really, really think they should be like a Bible in the family home that everyone can refer to. Mm. Your book is brilliant. It's the same as Sustainable Ish Living Guide. But what have you written more recently? What what, what blogs? What would you like to tell everyone or direct them to that's a little bit fresher even that you've written in recent months? So I've actually fallen off the sort of blogging on the website a little bit. And I I think I probably tend to do more of my written stuff, actually, as social media posts now. I'm trying to think. I mean, the podcast is my sort of regular content that I produce. So like I said, there's this great episode about the guy who's written this book, The Day the World Stops Shopping. There's also the Ministry of Eco-Education that I mentioned. I did an interview with Paul Turner from that. So some of your educators who are listening might like that. And another great interview, I don't think that's come out yet, actually, with a lady called Paula Malone, who is involved in a charity called Energy Sparks that do a lot of education stuff. I think some of the stuff that does quite well for me on social media will be this sort of authentic stuff. So, you know, the, I did I did a blog post, actually, I think it was last year, that was, you know, 10 things that I still do that make me a rubbish environmentalist. And, and this idea that actually, you know, we're not, this acceptance of the imperfections and, the, you know, we're still a two-car family, we're still not you know, we're not vegan, we've got a dog, all these kinds of things. But that doesn't negate all the other stuff that I do. And that idea that it's okay to be imperfect and still, still get stuff done. Yeah, we love it. We love it. And I love the idea of your podcast. So I'd love all my listeners to listen to your podcast. How can they access it, Jen? If you just wherever you get your podcast, if you search sustainable ish, you should find it. And then or if you want to go onto the website, the website is a sustainablelife.co.uk. Gorgeous. Well, we will look to you for all of these important issues. And I'm you've certainly, you know, you've given me so much food for thought um, moving into the Christmas period. So thank you so much for everything that you do uh, because you are making a big difference in the world. So thank you oh, so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. 
www.tooledupeducation.com. Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site. <laughs>